0: so much. What a lovely welcome. It's lovely to be here. If you're, you're now asking yourselves about that accent. Where did it come from? Think single malt whiskey. <laughs> I was born in Glasgow, Scotland. But unfortunately, unfortunately, I did not have the privilege of spending my whole childhood there. So my accent got diluted. And I lived for... for um, For a number of years in England, which is a terrible shame. And if you you spend long enough in Jerusalem, you pick up a little bit of American as well, which uh, goes with the Scottish R. So, you know, if you're worrying about it, that's the story of my accent. First of all, thank you very, very much for a lovely welcome. I'm delighted to be here. I'm really looking forward to spending a month here. Um, Ari said it. I think he made it up, actually, in a newspaper. <laughs> uh, but um, it really is a pleasure to come to a place that you know you're going to spend some time. Um, it's not, you know, come in, say your thing and go. So I'm very much looking forward to getting to know all of you, to getting to know your names, to getting to getting to interact with you, learn about your lives, tell you a little bit about mine. And I hope that I'll be able to to stimulate some discussion and some thought about issues that I'm hoping at least you will consider um, relevant and interesting and exciting and, and so on. If you look at the titles, they might look a little bit daunting now and again. We'll be talking about philosophers and, and all sorts of complex ideas, but I hope I'll be able to make them accessible, drop a little bit of Scottish humour in the middle, and then, um, and then uh, we can go out for beers afterwards to celebrate. But uh, I, I, uh, I do hope that we will have a chance um, to talk. My wife always says to me that um, my, my natural propensity for, for lecturing is that I, you could stand me up against a wall and I'll just talk for two hours without, without being interrupted. So please don't let me do that. Um, interrupt, ask questions, engage, uh, feel free to, to interact at any time you like. Just raise your hand and I will promptly ignore your questions and carry on saying what I was going to say anyway. Okay, one last thing before I start is just to say that um, I got drenched today. So, my books all look like this, so don't think that I've read them, it's not. It's not that I've read them, they just got soaked. And as they dry out and they really look cr- you know, crinkly, it'll look like I'm this, this uh, feverish reader of text. But it's not true. I just bought them fresh so that I could come and show you that I own books. It doesn't mean that I read them. So, no, I will be reading a little bit. But I'd like to, I'd like to use this evening as an opportunity to stimulate um, future interest in some of the issues that I want to talk about. Um, that's one of the things that I want to do. And one of the other things that I want to do is to introduce myself a little bit, tell you a little bit about who I am. Um, not so much in, in the autobiographical sense of the word, but in the, in the intellectual sense of the word. What are my concerns um, I, I'm a, I call myself an educational philosopher really because one of, one of the many reasons, but really because I believe that our intellectual interests are connected very, very powerfully to our lives' experiences. Um, and I think that this is an opportunity this evening. Um, for, for those of you who come to this original you know, opening meeting, you'll get a chance to, to hear the key to many of the other issues and concerns that I'm going to be discussing in perhaps a little bit of a less personal way um, later on during the course of the month, but many of my deepest intellectual concerns are connected to some of my, some of my life's experiences, and I'd like to share some of them with you. Um, and I think that will give you a sense of what I mean um, when I talk about the major challenges facing, facing the Jewish world today. So I think there are three I think there are three major challenges, and I want to talk about three. I'm sure that if we were to go around the room and I was to say, you know, what do you think of the major challenges um, in the Jewish world today, then different people would put their hands up and say different things. And many of the things that other people would say would be different from what I'm going to talk about, and they're all legitimate and they're all right. Um, But I've picked out the three that are my major challenges, and they're the ones that I want to talk about. And the first one that I want to talk about is the challenge of sovereignty what it means to to have judaism in a world where there is such a thing as jewish sovereignty um we all know that the state of israel has been around for 60 years but i think judaism is only just beginning to digest the implications of a 2000 year history without political responsibility readapting a tradition to a context in which we must we must carry political responsibility and that challenge is, I think, the crucial one, it's the most important one of our generation, and it's the one that I'd like to spend a great deal of my time in this month talking about from all sorts of different angles, um, in all sorts of different directions. The other two topics that I'll spend a little bit less time on are, um, I want to talk about feminism, and I want to talk about postmodernism. But let's start with sovereignty, and let me start with my story. I told you I was from Glasgow. Unfortunately, my family moved to Birmingham, in England. And in Birmingham, anyone ever been to Birmingham? The accent is just unbearable, terrible, <laughs> shocking. But it has a wonderful orchestra. Simon Rattle has a wonderful, wonderful symphony orchestra. We used, I used to go there often as a kid. Um, my father was a professor of medicine in Birmingham University, and that was, why, that was why we moved. I came from a religious family, a Zionist family. I was very active in Bnei Kiva, which is a Zionist youth movement. Um, And I used to go to this little Talmud class. And one evening, at the age of 14, I had the decisive event which changed my whole life story. When I was 14 years old, walking home from my little Talmud class with my kippah on my head and my not soaking wet Talmud under my arm, I was walking through the streets of Birmingham on the way back to my parents' home, on the way home. And I took a little shortcut through a council estate. I don't know what the what the California equivalent is, but it's public housing. Um, not a very good place to walk around with a kippah on your head. And as I was walking, as I was walking along the road, I saw coming in the opposite direction. I saw these three skinheads um, with swastikas painted on their heads. Um, and I saw them coming, and I, I remember that we I, at the time I was studying in literature at school Thomas Hardy's poem the, the convergence of the twain and about this inevitability of the encounter between the Titanic and the iceberg and I was walking along this road thinking I'm not going to be able to avoid these guys and I crossed over the road to the other side of the road just to you know get away from them and put my head down and walked along the road and I saw that they'd crossed over so I crossed back and I saw that they crossed back and I realized I'm not going to be able to avoid these people so I put my head down you know, tried to condense myself and make myself as small as I possibly could. And I walked along the road. And as I walked past them, one of them leaned out his shoulder so as to bump into me. Of course, accused me of bumping into him. They grabbed me physically. They forced me to goose step, um, literally grabbing hold of my legs. And then they threw me into a corner and they proceeded to bash the hell out of me. Um, and they, they, they re- uh, by by the third kick to the nose, I wasn't feeling the pain anymore, um, but I was absolutely, I was absolutely beaten to a pulp. Don't worry, I'm fine. <laughs> I can see the concerned faces. I'm okay. No, no permanent damage. But I was very, very, very um, shaken up by this and very frightened. Um, and actually, at the end of it, they, they, they asked me if I had any money in my pockets, and I was, you know, scrummaging through my pockets. I found five p or ten p or whatever it was. Uh, and I gave them, I gave them the money, and they said, "Right, you can go." And I'll never forget when they said, "You can go," I said, "Thank you." And then they went, they went, and they just left me lying in a pool of blood, literally lying in a pool of blood on the ground. And I said, "What did I say thank you for?" I was appalled, and I sat there, I sat there for quite a long time before I got up and I went home. And I made three major promises to myself. Promise number one was that I was going to get a black belt in karate. And I did, by the way. I had a silver medal as under-18s under, under 18's black belt um, competition in Taekwondo in Britain before I before I left. But I can't do anything anymore. I can't lift my feet any higher than my, than my, than my knees. But I used to be great. I could do these flying kicks. It was wonderful. Um, but that was my first promise, the first one I fulfilled anyway. The second and the third were really part of the same promise, but I vowed on that day, lying on the ground, that I'm going to go and settle in Israel and that when I get to Israel, I'm going to serve in the army. Now, you've got to remember, I was 14. It's not very sophisticated thinking. I understand that. But those were the promises that I made to myself. And on the day that I finished high school, literally on the day, it was very symbolic and extremely important for me. On the day that I finished high school, I went to school on my last day of school with a one-way ticket to Israel in my bag, and my father picked me up from school and took me to the airport. And I've been living in Israel ever since. It was a critical, critical gesture for me, and it was very, very important. But apart from being a personal story, which I know is moving, but apart from being a personal story, when I, if we just reflect on it for a minute... My personal story is a synecdochic example of a major thrust in Zionist thinking during the course of the 20th century. And the fundamental idea that, this, that this, the state of Israel would provide a solution to the conditions of Jewish life in the diaspora, and that the state of Israel would provide a solution to the inability of Jewish people to defend themselves under attack, this is one of the fundamental thrusts of the Zionist movement. The first declarations of the Zionist movement were that we were going to provide a solution to the condition of diaspora. So for me, Israel was the solution to my big problem. problem was I was 14 years old, very naive, and there were other problems that I didn't know anything about. So let me jump to story number two, which in my opinion is worse. But in 1986, I settled in Israel. 18 years old, I settled in Israel and I signed up to study in a Hesder yeshiva and I started studying Torah. And it was the beginning of my, of my real Jewish education. I grew up in a religious home, but it was nothing like what I encountered in Israel. And as I spent my first years in Israel, I discovered these, these Israelis who were my age and they knew everything it was unbelievable their mastery of biblical texts of Talmudic texts of Mishnah of Jewish history i idealized these people i thought they were incredible i was one of these i was one of these really excited olim who comes to israel and wears his sandals in the winter and Spends all his time hanging out with Israelis until I'd mastered Hebrew. I worked like mad until I had the R in my resh So as I would sound like a real born and bred Israeli, I even tried eating that, that, that white cheese stuff that they... I still can't do that. I can't hold that down. That's the last frontier of Aliyah that I just can't. But I came to Israel very, very excited about what Israel had to offer me. And I studied and I learned and I grew and it was wonderful. But in 1987, a year after arriving in Israel, as I promised, I was drafted into the army. And I found myself in 1987 serving in the Givati Brigade. It's an infantry brigade. And those of you who can remember the history, I know that most of you weren't alive in 1987. You were still, you were still in diapers. But um, those of you who perhaps heard from your parents or your grandparents will know that in 1987, um, the first intifada broke out. The truth is that the first intifada chose to break out on me. My unit was the first unit to encounter the offensive of the first intifada. We were patrolling in Jabalia, a refugee camp in Gaza. And the whole refugee camp was under curfew for days and days and days. And we were patrolling around. It's actually the most densely populated area on the planet. But we didn't see a soul for days and days and days. We could hear the noises of children playing behind, behind metal gates. And we could hear dogs barking and smell cooking of food. But we didn't see a single soul. And we were walking around on these patrols, winding our way through the streets of Jabalia, a very, very densely populated refugee camp that we had to ourselves. And all of a sudden, we turned a corner, And there were thousands of people in the streets. Thousands of people in the streets. And they were furious at me (laughs) and pelting stones and bottles and rocks and furniture and God knows what else throwing at us. We had no idea what to do. We were totally ill-equipped. The only weapons we had in our hands were machine guns. And we weren't being shot at. So I won't go into the details of that particular story, we managed to get out of the situation, but the reality is that within, within a few days the Israeli army decided that the correct response to the First Intifada was corporal punishment. That The way to deal with the First Intifada was to make it go away using corporal punishment. And we were issued truncheons that looked a little bit like baseball bats. And I don't know if you remember, Rabin landed at the airport. And he said we 'll break their you remember that one we 'll break their 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 bones. Um, those were the instructions that we were given. That was not just a that was not just a statement for the press. We were told actually the orders were to show the anger of the Israeli army. Th- those were our instructions, and under some circumstances, it was you know breaking into people 's houses and bashing you know destroying property. We smashed windows, we broke television sets, we threw plates out of windows. One particular incident that I want to tell you about took place in the refugee camp of Khan Yunis. And the brilliant idea was if we keep everyone in Khan Yunis up all night long, they'll be so exhausted the next morning that the Intifada will come to an end. It's wonderful that we have military geniuses (laughs) working on the strategy. Israel was really confused. And I was part of this incredibly complex operation. The idea was to wake up everybody between the ages, males between the ages of 16 and 23. Of course, when you do that, everyone gets up. And we had to put half of Jabalia back to bed so as we could just get the 16 to 23 year olds over to a stadium. We placed, We placed them in the stadium, we cuffed them, and we held them there all night long, and then we released them in the morning. And when we released them in the morning, God forgive me for telling this story. but when we released them in the morning, I was positioned at the gate of this huge stadium where we had held these people all night long. I was issued a truncheon, and I was told they're going to come running by. Your job is to thump them one after the other. I couldn't do it. So my officer comes over to me. At the time, my Hebrew was still very um, it was still very scratchy. It doesn't matter where you come from if you don't speak a native Hebrew. You're an American. So my, offer come, my officer comes over to me and says, "No Amerikai, you Nevesh, right? American. Tamod Batsad, ten Stand over there. I'll show you what to do." And this guy, this guy stood there and started bashing, bashing the hell out of everyone who came past him. At one instance, I saw him take his cigarette and burn somebody on the head. And when I saw that, I said, I have to do something. And I went over to him and I said, if I tell him off, if I reprimand him, he won't listen to me. So I said to him, I want to have a shot at this. And I realized that I had, for humane reasons, to thump the people who were going past. And as I was standing there, as I was standing there, this kid, he must have been about 16 years old, and I see his face all day on Yom Kippur every year. This kid came running past me. I was aiming for his shoulder. I was going to thump him in the shoulder. He turned his head. I caught him squarely in the face. And I said to myself, at that very moment, oh, my god. What happened to me four years previously, I was now doing to somebody else. I don't know. When you're 19 years old, four years seems like a terribly long time but now that I'm only slightly younger than Ari. (laughs) Four years is nothing. And I look back at these two events that are back-to-back, and again, synecdochically, they symbolize exactly the question. When I left England, Israel was the answer to all of my questions as a young Jew. How are we going to live as Jews? The answer was Israel. Israel was the solution to the diasporic existence of the Jewish people. Zionism was the solution to the diasporic existence of the Jewish people. And I believe that, by the way. I'm a staunch Zionist. I don't know what your positions are. But I'm a staunch Zionist. However, what I understood in a very harsh and difficult way was that Israel had stopped being the answer to all of my questions. It had become the question that it was now my responsibility to dedicate a life to trying to finding, find answers. Israel moved from being the answer and became the question. I think that's true personally for me in my personal story. But it's also true, I think, in a very, very broad way that the experience of come, let's build a state, let's put an end to the diaspora, let's build a new life, let's reinvigorate Judaism. It was the answer to so many questions, but now, 60 years on, I think we can understand that Israel is the source of the most fundamental questions that the Jewish people have had to answer for thousands of years. Not just in the negative sense, by the way. I know the story that I've told starts as often on a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a negative, on a negative tone, but it's not—it's not just negative. We have fundamentally critical questions about what it means to be Jewish in the modern world, and it doesn't matter if you live in Orange County, Honolulu, or Auckland, New Zealand. We are living in a generation in which Judaism is confronting new questions. Wherever you are, you don't need to be in Israel in order to recognize that Judaism as a religion has gone untested for thousands of years. At least in terms of the ethics and morals of political responsibility. So my question and this is a question that I hope to explore with you during the course of my time here in Orange County. Um, In all sorts of intellectual discussions and debates, and we're going to look at Jewish texts and so on, but my question is, what does it mean to be Jewish in an age where the religion that we're talking about, Judaism, is confronting the challenges of political sovereignty? Can we say the same things about Jewish law? Can we allow Jewish morals and Jewish ethics to continue unchanged when we need to confront the challenges of sovereignty? I'd I'd like to read a little passage. It's soggy wet, but it's from one of my close and dear teachers, who I'm sure you've all heard of. His name is David Hartman. I rarely agree with David Hartman. We bash out Everything He agrees with me on nothing. I think that's why I love him so much. But this passage, I think, is just one of those rare occasions where David gets it right. And he writes as follows. Because of national renewal and empowerment, Jews are no longer living metaphors for the other, the stranger, the eternal victim. They now wield power in a sovereign state, And so they cannot conceal their moral failures by blaming others. The rebirth of Israel provides the Jewish people with a public arena where they themselves must take charge, drawing on the strength of their tradition to give a direction to political life and a content to popular aspiration. Now, Jewish values must come to grips with Jewish power. Ow. Isn't that sobering? It's incredible. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful little paragraph. He writes that paragraph in an introduction to a book. It's actually a series. It's a collection. It's called The Jewish Political Tradition. This is a soggy version of volume, volume one. But the Jewish political tradition is an attempt, it's 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 a a piece of phenomenal scholarship which has been conducted by uh, Michael Walzer and Menachem Lorbeboim, the two are the two scholars who who collaborated on this. It's It's a collaboration between the Hartman Institute, where I teach, and the Institute for Advanced Studies at Princeton. And they've said, let's ask political questions of Jewish texts. Let's look at the way in which the Jewish religion talks about leadership, Let's look at the way in which the Jewish religion talks about morals. Let's look at the way in which the the Jewish religion talks about ethics. Let's look at the way in which the Jewish religion talks about economics. And so on and so on and so forth. Let's look at the categories of of, of modern life and formulate from those categories the fundamental questions that we need to ask when we open up the Talmud. It's no longer theoretical. If the Talmud represents a a legal system, then how does that legal system function when we take responsibility for it as a people who lives with sovereignty? These are fundamental, fundamental questions. And while this is one project, and it's actually a wonderful resource for those of you, I don't know if anyone here is is a teacher of any sort, but it's a... A wonderful resource because Hebrew texts here are translated into English and explained. It. It's really a superb curricular resource for anyone who's interested. Um, I'd be happy to give you more direct references to it afterwards if you come over. But, um, but I think that this is just one example of something incredible that is going on today in Israeli society. Israel is a fascinating and wonderful society to live in. I love living in Israel. I would never contemplate living anywhere else. Because despite the difficulties, the challenges and the excitement of reinvigorating the Jewish tradition, grappling seriously with the textual heritage of the Jewish people and forcing that heritage to speak to the concerns of our time, I think that's an incredible challenge. And I hope that in the time that we have, I'll be able to give you a little bit of a taste of my thinking on this and and some of the excitement that I have about this. I'm just going to say one more thing. I'm going to tell one more story, and then I'll move on to the second challenge. But I think there's a question over there if you want to... Yeah. I think we constantly have to reevaluate our position. Um, I think the world is constantly changing. The only thing that you can rely on always being there is change. But there are changes, and there are changes. Um, and I think that, that we, have, we have some fundamental new challenges which we need to confront as, as a result of the sovereign state. However, I'll go, I'll go a little bit further, and I'll say that the Zionist idea at its inception thought of the solution to the Jewish problem in terms of negating the Jewish diaspora. Now, that was foolish. And the Zionist thinkers who, who, who wrote that kind of stuff in the 1920s and the 1930s were completely ignoring what what Jewish thinkers outside of Israel and outside of the Zionist movement were already saying, particularly in the United States. And now we're dealing with a bipolar Jewish world in which there is Jewish sovereignty and a very prosperous Jewish community, particularly in the United United States, that has no intentions whatsoever of dissolving itself and disappearing. So that creates another challenge. It's not just Judaism in an age of sovereignty, it's Judaism in an age of sovereignty where only half of the Jewish people live with that sovereignty. So I think that these things there's constant change, there's constant updating that needs to be done. Um, But qualitatively speaking, I think that the idea of sovereignty Redefines the challenge of modern Jewish life more than any single other experience, um, including the Holocaust, in terms of how we understand Judaism. I think that that sovereignty is, is is really the one that forces us that forces us to rethink. So I'm going to try and give that claim a lot more substance during the course of the of the month. If you if you haven't if you haven't if you're, if you're left with a taste of more and you, haven't, had, you got, haven't got answers to your questions, there's a very, very busy lineup of lectures here that Ari has tied me, tied me into giving. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just say one more thing. One more thing about this before I, before I move on. You're going to have to tell me when to stop. Um, I really, How much time have I got? Give, you'll tell me. OK. <laughs> Give me a time. It's now 8.06. I can go on for hours. OK, so we're doing good. Um, Another, another story which I think is important, um, just to tell you a little bit more about who I am. Um, I spent my academic career dealing with questions of, of the relationship between Judaism and the other cultures and other religions of the world. Um, a lot of my research has dealt with Jewish theology and Christian theology and how Judaism and Christianity um, relate to each other and interact with each other. And I have a particular interest in looking at those questions, particularly in the medieval context. Because it's fascinating to see how an incredibly powerful and vigorous conflict between Jews and Christians in the Middle Ages has now turned into this wonderful symbiotic relationship between Jews and the the Christian countries of the world. So I think that that, tra- that transition is a fascinating opportunity for looking at conflicts and how, how they unfold and how they can actually, how they can actually be resolved. So that, that's, that's one area I'm very interested in. I'm also very interested in 20th century thinkers who I think have confronted this challenge of, of sovereignty. So that brings me to the next story, which is to take us forward in time to 2006. In the summer of 2006, I don't spend my life in the army. I'm a scholar. I teach in the university. I have five children. I live in a noisy home. But in the summer of 2006, I was drafted again. And I got drafted every year. I did Milouim. But in the summer of 2006, for the first time in my life, I really went to full-scale war. I'd been involved in all sorts of all sorts of skirmishes and events and all sorts of things over the years during my Milouim service. But in the summer of 2006, I got, I got sucked into the Second Lebanon War. And I spent... The entirety of the Second Lebanon War, inside Lebanon, my unit was one of the few um, Milouim units that got taken over the border right at the beginning, and we, st- we stayed there right to the end. But by this time, I was already an old man. Certainly, by military in military terms, by the time you're about 26, you're old in the army. I was 38 years old um, in 2006, and already a father of five, and in the middle of a war. And um, this experience was a very, very powerful one for me, as you can imagine. But the striking experience that hit me, I think, more than any other during the course of the war was the experience of prayer. Because during the course of the war, apart from you know the constant mumbling that goes on, protect me, protect me, take care of me, this kind of stuff, there was regular prayer. It, in the morning you daven shacharit, in the afternoon you daven mincha, in the evening you daven maariv. I'm a practicing Orthodox Jew. The only personal item I took with me into Lebanon was my tefillin. I couldn't get a toothbrush in, but I got my tefillin in, and I put them on every single day during the course of the war. And prayer was a very, very powerful experience for me during the course of the war. But one of the things that struck me very, very powerfully, as I prayed at war was just how easy it was to pray at war. Just how easy it was for the prayers to become weapons. It's a striking experience, particularly when you live you know, in, in, in the open-minded liberal South Jerusalem that I live in. When I saw how easy it was to arm my prayers with hate, it was a very, very striking experience. And I recognize that we need to engage very, very seriously with what it means to articulate an authentic, modern, religious experience which is simultaneously authentic and in tune with the tradition and honest about all sorts of things that are in the tradition. And believe me, if you study it carefully, the Bible contains all sorts of things that our modern sensitivities don't like. And rather than dismiss them, I think we need to confront them in a complex way. And this, that message was only really driven home to me during the course of the war, when I recognised that I was personally implicated by all sorts, of, all sorts of things in my tradition that I thought I could ignore. And that brings me to my second challenge, which I think is a critical one and a very, very important one. I'd like to talk a little bit about feminism. In the orthodox world, if we just stay with the orthodox world for a minute, which is, where, which is where I live, there is a serious attempt to remain perpetually claimed by the authentic voice of the tradition. That doesn't mean that orthodoxy doesn't adapt and that orthodoxy doesn't change, but I'll say it again. There is a perennial determination to remain claimed by the authentic voice of the tradition. Now, one of the solutions to the question of the radical change in the status of women in Western society in the last hundred or so years is to say, we have to sacrifice the tradition for our modern ser- sensitivities and for our modern concerns, that's one solution. An alternative solution is to go the opposite way, and which is to say, we have to sacrifice the dignity of women in a modern world in which that is patently impossible without creating offense in order to remain exclusively claimed by the authentic voice of the tradition and these two extremes these two extremes strike me believe it or not as the two authentic options now it's very very difficult it's very very difficult to choose am i going to be jewish and chauvinist paternalistic or am i going to be liberal and lighthearted about my commitment to the jewish tradition That challenge, I think, is a very very profound one. It's a very difficult one. I don't want to say, by the way, that I think that challenge is exclusive to the Orthodox world. I don't think it is at all. I think that the conservative movement and the reform movement in different ways have grappled with this challenge very very honestly and very very deeply. But they've made decisions and they've made choices, which I believe fall a little bit short of the profound challenge of recognizing all those things that are ugly, difficult and disturbing in the Jewish tradition's treatment of women. The Jewish tradition is a paternalistic tradition. Now, I'm not in the business this evening of giving you solutions to these problems. Um, What I'm in the business of this evening is to try and impress upon you so you'll come back to my lectures, but to try and impress upon you how severe and how serious these challenges are and what a price it is that we pay when we solve them too easily and when we solve them too quickly. I think that we face a very deep and serious challenge in the modern world, which is to internalize the idea that feminism is not just about the liberation of women in political terms. The, feminist, the, the great accomplishment of feminism is that it developed categories for, for re-explaining and for reinterpreting and for re-understanding almost every aspect of, human, of the human experience. Not by talking about the liberation of women, but by talking about the presence of categories of gender. And when we recognize that the categories of gender are playing, even in a room where there are only ten men, Actually, especially in a room where there are only 10 men. There's so much gender in a room when there are only 10 men, right? It's charged with testosteroneous gender. We need to consider very, very seriously how these categories play out as interpretive devices for understanding our tradition authentically. Is it possible that the feminist revolution, rather than being only a political movement about equality of rights for women, is also a process of revelation that is allowing a blind world to pay attention to the whole of creation? Is it possible that there are deep messages that are embedded in our tradition that we do not see and that we do not understand because our sensitivities are limited? That there are hidden black boxes all over the place that we don't open up and that we don't see until we name them, until we notice them, until we dignify them, until we recognize them. It's a little bit like walking in the country. My wife knows the names of all the flowers. I don't know the name of any flowers. But when I'm walking with her, I see them all. Because she says, ah, oh, that's that one, and that's this one, and it's got this name, and it's got that name. When you give something a name, when you identify it, When you dignify it by giving it a name, you notice it. It enters your consciousness. And these categories of gender, I think, have created for us sensitivities to issues that have always been there and that we have been able to deny. And this is the real challenge of feminism, not the liberation of women alone, which I don't think is the exclusive concern of the Jewish tradition, but the reinterpretation of the Jewish tradition in the light of human experience, rather in the light of the experience of men. And that is a fundamental issue that forces us to rethink the entirety of the tradition's messages. The simple idea you listened to Rachel Alior last year, I know the simple idea that God is not a guy. I don't know what he is, or she is, or they are. I don't know. I mean, they are. You can't really say that in a monotheistic. But the <laughs> multiple. After you've heard Ruchelady, or maybe you can. Um, <clears throat> but the 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 notion, the notion that we have projected onto God a male identity, when when you when you open that up for a minute and rethink it, the entirety of biblical theology is open to serious reconsideration. Who are we praying to? So these, I think, are fundamental questions and they pose one of the most significant challenges to our generation. A challenge of reinterpretation, just like sovereignty. Feminism poses to us a challenge of reinterpretation. I'll just say, on the anecdotal level, since you're getting anecdotes for me along with my, my intellectual concerns, I am one of the founding members of, of a community in Jerusalem called Shirah Hadasha, Kilat Shirah Hadasha defines itself as the world's first orthodox feminist community. Not egalitarian. Don't use the E-word. We don't use the E-word. We're not motivated by egalitarianism. We're, no, we're motivated by feminism. And it's a, it's a big difference. It's a very significant difference. And it doesn't just mean noticing women. It means noticing people. It means paying attention to the disempowered. It means not using the festivals as an opportunity to... pat yourself on the back, but using the festivals as an opportunity to be inclusive of others who don't, who don't earn prominence in their daily lives because we stand equally in front of God. It means considering very carefully what the sound, what the, what the vocal sound of Torah reading can be in an Orthodox community. The first time I heard a woman read from the Torah, the, the the story of Parshat Sota. Right, I don't know if you're familiar. In the book of Bamidbar, a man has the has the entitlement to accuse his his wife um, of infidelity. He needs he needs he needs to bring absolutely no evidence whatsoever in order for her to go through a really shocking trial, um, an ordeal in order to establish her innocence. And when you when you when you read that passage, and you hear it in the voice of a woman, rather in the voice of a man, the text itself is ironized, And the opportunities for reinterpreting it and for opening it up to contemporary meaning, for leveraging the irony of the text for a contemporary understanding, they're opened up not by an intellectual breakthrough but by a vocal breakthrough. It's an incredible, it's an incredible experience. So how do we walk the walk and talk the talk? At the same time, how do we create a community that interprets the Jewish tradition in the light of this incredible revolution that has taken place during the course of the 20th century? It's not just about halachic egalitarianism. It's It's about our spiritual identity. It's about our religious lives. It's about our communal identity. It's not a matter if you draw the line halachically, the way the Reform Movement does, the way the Conservative Movement does, or the way the Orthodox Movement does. The question, I think, is the same for everybody. We're talking about a massive revolution in the world, and its resolution is not going to be quick. And I think this is one of the major challenges that that we should put on the table for the Jewish agenda today, what it is that we're talking about. The third one that I want to say something about, I'm actually going to be talking quite a lot about this in various different lectures with frightening titles. But, yes. Yes, absolutely. I can also say something to that now as well, if you would like. Um, But very briefly, um, I have nothing against egalitarianism, but I think that confusing egalitarianism with feminism is is to sell feminism a little bit short. Um, People talk in, in feminist scholarship, people talk about three generations, first, second, and third generation feminism. First generation feminism articulated a vision in which women could participate in society as in the same ways as men. Right? It means that women would receive the vote, it means that women... And th- there was a lot of backlash, you know, women who want to be men was the accusation that was levelled against the first generation of, of feminist thought. Second generation fem- feminism was very much about egalitarianism. It was about creating equal opportunities for men and for women. The work has not been accomplished, by the way. There's still a tremendous amount to do, certainly in Israel. There's still a tremendous amount to do. But the important, the key issue, was that things needed to be fair, okay? And and that's, that's egalitarianism. The third generation feminism, which is the feminism that I'm talking about, is not so much concerned with the equality of men and women. It's about the legitimacy of two different forms of discourse there are women who choose inequality who are delegitimized by the egalitarian by the egalitarian doctrine right so that creates it creates, it creates a rather complex irony and the 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 issue is to tease out those voices that understand feminism in purely egalitarian terms and those voices that understand feminism as a total redefinition and redescription of the of the interaction between gender and society. So I think that distinction is a very, very important one for us to pay attention to, because there are, there are gender categories that apply to men. There are feminine gender categories that apply to men. You know, the guys are in touch with the women inside. And the other way around, right? And there are different forms of, of, of feminine expression that don't necessarily wish to compete at all on the same playing field as, as, as the male playing field. So these kinds of distinctions between feminism and egalitarianism, I think, open the door, A, for an entirely, an entirely different understanding of the whole of society. The egalitarian agenda forces us to keep symmetry in place in, asymmetric, in asymmetrical situations. Right? But in addition, I think that the, the, um, the, the approach of gender, or the approach of feminism, allows us also to reinterpret text. Even in places where there's no, there's no moral or ethical problem that needs to be solved. There are just voices that aren't heard. And those voices aren't trying to be heard equally, they're trying to be heard at all in the first place. So that distinction between feminism and egalitarianism, I think, is very important. Feminism isn't necessarily competitive. Um, and it allows, us, it allows us to hear voices that need to be heard. My wife would say that the primary one is hers and the primary one who doesn't hear it is me. But that's, that's all right. That's, that's why I love her so much.
1: Anyway, yes, go ahead.
0: Okay, so have you got the date of the lecture that I'm giving on Qawad HaTzibur? There is a lecture on Qawad What you're talking about is the Gemara Megillah Kafkim Lamud Aleph. And it's it, it there it quotes from the Tosefta. And there's actually a very, very uh, interesting discrepancy between the way the Tosefta complete, reaches its conclusion and what happens with the Talmud. There's a, a later rabbinic edition. It seems that in the, in the time of the Mishnah, I'm going very expressly through this because I'll talk about it in much more detail in another... February 7th, but the Talmud Talmud makes an addition on the conclusion of the Tosefta which allows women to read and says, they can't. The question is what does K'vod mean? You've given one of the interpretations. The problem is that there are seven cases in the Talmud that are, that are described as being prohibited because of K'vod and not all of them apply to women. Some of them apply to ritual objects. You can't leave a Sefer Torah uncovered, A child cannot, cannot approach the Sefer Torah if his clothes are ripped because of K'vod ha-tibu. A Kohen can't, br- can't give the blessings of the priest. Um, if his sandals are dirty, or if his feet are dirty, because of quadriplegic, not all of these seem to be about the issue of women in, uh, inhibiting men because they know stuff that the men don't know. So my, my suggestion is that quadriplegic is in and of itself a gender category. Kavod is a theological term. It refers to the male aspect of God. And tziboh is a sociological term that refers to the male community that comes together to form the minyan. Kvod is a gendered term. And how we leverage that and how we reinterpret it will be the subject of a lecture on February seventh. So you're welcome to come along and I'll be very happy to to explain it in more detail then. This is just a, this evening I'm just giving you little tastes of things that we will delve into much, much more deeply. Okay, I'm going to go on to the third subject because my wife doesn't like me talking about feminism. She thinks I'm a hypocrite. (laughs) Um, Oh yeah, I am. Of course I'm a hypocrite. All men are. Anyway, um, the, the, um, I'm just kidding. Uh, The third subject that I want to say something about I also want to say something about the fourth one that I didn't choose to talk about, which is assimilation, and I want to explain why. It's not in my major three, and I want to explain why. But let me me first say something about the third. The third is postmodernism. Postmodernism has got such a terrible name. Now, when I heard I was coming to Irvine, I was delighted because Irvine, California was the home in America of Jacques Derrida. I don't know how many of you had an opportunity to interact with him and how involved he was in the community here. But I'm going to be talking quite a lot. I'm going to be talking quite a lot about Derrida, and I'm going to be suggesting that the way in which we read postmodernism is a huge. I don't know how you read postmodernism. I'm making assumptions here. But most people read postmodernism as a free for all anything goes. Kids can say to the teacher in school, well, I think two and two is five. What right have you got to, to encroach upon my subjectivity? Um, you know, these kinds, of, these kinds of understandings of postmodernism, I think, are, are inadequate. I think they're inadequate. The issue here that I want to touch on very briefly, and I'm just going to throw this out. I'm just going to throw this out very, very briefly. My time is really running out. But I'm going I'm to say very, very briefly. One of the critical things that postmodernism does – by the way, it's a terrible name. Postmodernism implies that there's modernism and then postmodernism comes afterwards. Modernism and postmodernism are – they develop simultaneously. It's really a a critique of modernity, which runs side by side with modernity and can clearly be traced back to Nietzsche, if not before. So it's no later than, than modern thought but the postmodern critique as it is called undermines the notion that a single truth can can cast its tyranny on alternatives that there is a notion of a single truth and before you jump out of your seats and say oh that's pluralism it's not pluralism there's one major fallback in pluralism, is that the only people who are, plur- who, who are pluralists are pluralists. You can be a left-wing pluralist, a right-wing pluralist, a Buddhist pluralist, a Christian pluralist, a Jewish pluralist, but all of that is pluralist. What about non-pluralists? Does pluralism have a place for them? No, it doesn't. So there's a problem here, but postmodernism questions the validity of the notion of a single truth. Now that idea in and of itself has totally changed modern intellectual culture. That thought of itself as pursuit of the truth. That's what scholars are supposed to do. We're supposed to try and figure things out and reach the truth. What did Shakespeare really mean when he wrote X? What is the reason that balls fall to the ground when you leave go of them from a certain height? Can we calculate it and quantify it in objective terms that are universal and that will always be true under all circumstances? That was the objective. Postmodernism calls that into question, not just in epistemological terms, in other words, in terms of whether or not that's true, but also in ethical terms, in terms of whether or not a society that talks about a universal truth will not necessarily be an oppressive society, since other people's truths will be de-legitimized, which is where postmodernism meets with post-colonialism. What's the problem? There are two big problems. One is monotheism, and the other is Zionism. Monotheism assumes a single god. So the assumption would be that the single god has a single truth. Okay? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Where did the heaven and the earth come from? They came from God who created them in the beginning. Truth. What happens, not just when Darwin comes up with an alternative, but when the second chapter of Genesis comes up with an alternative? And then the third chapter of Genesis comes up with another alternative. How can we reconcile a modern religious tradition with a notion of a single truth? These are, And can we talk about the varieties of truth that exist in the Jewish tradition and still remain loyal to the monotheistic idea. So I think that this is a very, very fundamental question for modern religion. How do we deal with the idea that religion doesn't get to compete with science for the truth? How do we get our heads around that? How do we deal with the possibility that religion cannot make absolute truth claims? Not because religion isn't truthful, but because truth is no longer capitalized. So if if truth is no longer an absolute value, if it's relative, then what's the point of religion and what claims can it make to being a valid system for understanding and interpreting the world? This is a fundamental question. And it raises really, really big questions for Jews, particularly within the Zionist context. So why are we here? Because our story says that we were here 2,000 years ago. That's the truth, that's what happened. And now we've come back. So your truth doesn't matter anymore. These are fundamental questions. It's possible that we could understand the postmodern critique of modernity as a tremendous and fundamental threat to the prosperity of the Jewish people and and to our collective truth claims. I'm going to argue quite vigorously during a number of my presentations here, that postmodernism opens up for our thinking in, as Jews in the modern world new avenues that are incredibly productive and that allow us to regain our hold on a much richer kind of Jewish ethics than the kind that positivist, modernist, scientific epistemology allows us to hold on to. So that's going to be, that's going to be a, major, a major issue that I'm going to touch on as well and that I hope will not leave you too, uh, too confused with abstract philosophical concepts. But I just, I just threw it out now for a taste. I'm going to say one last thing before I finally shut up and let you ask all your questions. Um, I haven't picked assimilation as one of the major challenges of the Jewish world. And the reason why is not because I'm not troubled by assimilation, and not because I don't think it's, it's a real concern or a real problem. But I think that when we talk about the Jewish world, we're talking fundamentally about the reinterpretation of the Jewish tradition. And I don't think that assimilation competes with either sovereignty, feminism, or postmodernity as a defining question for how we go about reinterpreting the Jewish tradition. I would say, and I will say, and these are my closing remarks, that if we do live up to the challenges of reinterpreting our tradition in our time, in the light of sovereignty, feminism, and postmodernity, we will have a chance, we'll have a shot at making the tradition sufficiently compelling, sufficiently refreshing, sufficiently challenging, and sufficiently exciting to make it the choice of the young generation of Jews growing up in the world today. Thank you very, very much. (laughs) Questions? Please, please feel free to ask anything that you'd like to ask. Yes? Um, neither of those two options. Yes, we are feeling it. It is an issue, but it's not the same kind of issue as as it is perhaps for you. But I want to make something very clear. I think that the victimization of Jews in an era where there is no Jewish sovereignty is entirely different from the victimization of Jews in an era where there is Jewish sovereignty. So the question isn't, is there victimization or isn't there? Is there anti-Semitism or isn't there? Is anti-Zionism anti-Semitism or not? And you know, all these kinds of questions. I don't think that that's the question that I'm pointing at. I'm pointing at the fact that all of those questions are experienced fundamentally differently because of Jewish sovereignty and because of Jewish power. And by the way, I'm not ashamed of Jewish power. Um, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that we should get rid of it. Um, I really think that we're in much better shape today because we have it. And we should hold on to it and cultivate it. But it forces us to think differently about what it means to be Jews. And that's the question. When when, when we have problems of the sort that you're describing, they're different problems because of sovereignty. But so is reading the Torah a different experience because of sovereignty. So the question is not what the issues are. I think some of the issues travel across time and repeat themselves today. Sovereignty doesn't change every issue. It changes the way in which we need to respond to issues. It's a completely different experience of being Jewish. Even if you don't live in the state of Israel, Jewish sovereignty changes things. That that was my point. It's not that I care or don't care about those concerns, which I happen to care about very much. Uh, am, I, am I clear? Am I making, yeah?
1: I'm not dealing with the fear of
0: Israel's existence. Not dealing with the fear of Israel's existence. Not at all. Israel is a robust, fascinating, strong, healthy society with lots of problems. But guess what? <laughs> so does America have problems. Everyone has problems. Um, but Israel is unique to me as a Jew because it forces me to rethink, about what it, to rethink what it means to be Jewish. I don't think Israel's existence is in peril. Um, I, I think that that was my story. That was what I felt when I was 14 years old. But that's what, that's what I've realized I need to stop feeling if we're going to live up to the challenges of our generation. I think that, that when David Hartman talks about the ex- hiding behind the excuse of being the perennial victim, he's saying that that mentality is not a luxury that we can allow ourselves in a world in which we wield a tremendous amount of strength and power. Not just not just military power, there's cultural power in Israeli society. There's tremendous creativity. There's, there are agendas in the world today that are being set by things that are happening in Israel. So, you know, this, this sense of victimization is not the sense that I have. Um, which doesn't mean that you don't or can't, it's just not my experience. Do I equate being Jewish with practicing the Jewish religion? No, I don't, actually, I don't. I also don't equate being Jewish with um, being born Jewish. What I would say is that if being Jewish for you, not you specifically, but for one, is purely about birth, then that's that's a tremendously wasted opportunity. Um, I think that being Jewish is about being jewish it 's an it 's an active continuous continuous verb not everybody does it religiously um, people do it in all sorts of different ways um, I do it religiously that 's my personal that 's my personal experience of being Jewish I also for some stupid reason equate being Jewish with singing it 's just who I am I sing a lot um, but but I understand that there are other people who don't sing, as Richard Rorty, the the uh, the uh, Californian philosopher, wrote. When it comes to religion, I just don't have a musical ear. <laughs> so some people, you know, some people do, and some people don't. I think we can equate it with all sorts of things. But I also don't believe in trying to speak everybody's perspective at the same time. I speak mine and share in conversation with others who'd like to speak theirs. Is that an answer? Yeah? Okay. One more. I'm not going to pick who it is. That's. <laughs> there are two, I think. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Last two. Is not threatening. I said that it's generally understood as th- being threatening to, to Zionism, but I believe, it can be, I, can, I believe that can be turned around. That is the subject. That's a subject of a whole series of three um, lectures. When you say that there is equivalence between two narratives, okay, you're assuming, f- forgive me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but that's a classic rhetorician's technique, um, you're assuming that there, is, that there are two narratives that have an equal shot at being truthful. right? If the notion of truth itself becomes deconstructed, which we will talk about, not now, then the whole idea of two narratives competing with each other becomes a nonsense. And what you then have the ability of doing is dignifying the person whose suffering is right in your face and of having your suffering dignified by him or her back. When truth is the dividing line and the litmus test, then you either have legitimate suffering or illegitimate suffering. Truthful suffering, non-truthful suffering, Historically vindicated suffering, historically deceitful suffering. And when you get into that world, you're in a world of conflict. I've had quite a lot of conflict over the last couple of years. And the possibility of redefining what it means to engage with another person's convictions by exiting truth from being the defining category, which postmodernism allows for, means that I don't have to compromise on my own self i don't need to compromise on my own convictions I also don't need to i also don't need to soften or weaken my my sense of identity in order to be able to dignify another voice that I see or hear when it's presented to me. I think that's very promising i don't think it's threatening at all I think it's a wonderful place to be in when you try to when you try to live with another person so I don't think it's a threat. I think it's a tremendous opportunity. When truth is the defining f- factor, I have no way of conceding anything without having to lose it myself. You see what I'm saying? Does that? So that's a subject that I think we're, we're going to have to talk about in, in in greater detail. But but that's that's the Cliff's Note version.
1: Didn't say a word about that, (laughs) yes.
0: I will. You you know what, I'm going to say something. How much time have we got? Have you got another two hours? Um, How long can you listen to a Scottish accent for? I can make it stronger if you like. <laughs> i'll tell you the uh, how Jewish dialogue with the Muslim world. I think what you're asking I, i'm not sure if you're asking Jewish dialogue with the Muslim world or Israeli dialogue with the Arab world. Um, which one are you really asking about the first? okay, so I think that I think if we keep the postmodern thing back in back in in, in the conversation, one of the interesting things that. Um, I have now reached the ability to admit, took me quite a long time. One of the things I've managed to learn to admit is that when it comes to God, I don't know anything. That certainty is the last thing that defines religious experience. Uh, We tend to think of religious people as certain people, right? In Hebrew, there's this ridiculous phrase that, that, that repentance is called tshuva, which is returning to God, but it also means an answer. And people who turn away from religion, they say that they have discovered questions. And of course, religion is exactly the opposite. Religion is standing before the great question mark in the sky. Um, we, we don't know. The fundamental experience of religion is an experience of accepting uncertainty. It's a kind of mystical openness. We'll be talking about this when we talk about Heschel, if you stick around. Um, From a position of not knowing, and of a passionate conviction to journeying towards discovery, I think there's a possibility for religious dialogue to be very constructive. And to be very open, it's when it's when non, it's when convictions, uncertainties, cannot be opened up, that you face that you face a conflict with another religion. Okay, now one of the things that I think is um, is promising and that is hopeful, is the recognition that the religious that the, the religious encounter can allow us to understand perhaps. That some of the problem that the Muslim world has with the Jewish world is connected to its secularism, so within the framework of religious dialogue, my experience has been that it 's easier to reach to reach an understanding of what we both don 't know than it is in in political conversation of course there 's less at stake, but it's also it 's also a productive and an open it 's a productive um, an important experience the only thing i would say if you ask him about my approach to this my approach is that is that religious interreligious dialogue must not be symmetrical we mustn't enforce symmetry on the circumstances that are not symmetrical both in terms of the hugeness of the islamic world and the teeny-weeny little size of the jewish world on the one hand, and also in terms of the strength of the state of Israel as opposed to the weakness of Palestinians. So there are are all sorts of asymmetries in all sorts of directions, and those need to be remembered and taken into consideration. When you get ten Jews, ten Muslims, you'll tell us how you bury your dead, and we'll tell you how we bury our dead, you tell us how you eat kosher food, and we'll tell you about halal. Very little happens, but when you try to confront, when you try to confront in asymmetrical terms, the different traditions, and to experience them and relate to them from within the context of your own, that can be a very productive experience. Not to create a relationship, but to enrich what it means to be Jewish and to enrich what it means to be Muslim separately. So, And that encounter creates a world where there's more understanding, okay? But that, that in a nutshell, that's, that's my approach to these issues. Thank you so very much for listening, <clears throat> Laila Tov.